as an introvert, I was only, I was actually, uh, I grew up as an only child. Mm. So I, uh, yeah, the pandemic, uh, I suppose that there was more isolation than I was used to, but it didn't necessarily, um, you know, catch me off guard as much as, yeah. as much as some, what about you? I mean, were you? I'm an introvert. I'm, a, I'm sort of an ambivert, I'm an told, ambivert. right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I kind of can move easily back and forth, but uh, I was in the middle of a huge book that I was writing at the time, and uh, we were having to sort of move around the country at the time because I was concerned about being close enough to my parents if we couldn't fly for years, yeah. which initially they thought maybe would be the case. Yeah. That I uh, I was sort of wherever I was, I, you know, I could just sort of you know, roll out my computer and yeah. go back to work. But uh, So I did all right, remarkably. I got a lot of work done. Were you, is this something you were writing with your partner from Brothers in Arms? Uh, we were working on a project together, yeah. actually, but um, at that time we were not. We were in that sort of pause mode. I'm, just, I'm back working with him now on a new project for television. Uh, What's that about? If, you can, if you're able to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, um, it's about the history of Russian disinformation in the American oh, wow. political system yeah. going back 100 years. And of course, my partner on Brothers in Arms is a very fine investigative journalist yeah. with very deep connections in that world. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but that had not yet come along, so I can speak to that briefly, but it's still in, in process, so I won't talk about it too much. Well, when I was thinking about, um, I guess about that book specifically, because I've read that and I've read uh, Brave Talk. Oh, fantastic. Brave Talk has a great, there's a great, um, there's definitely a psychiatry component to that. Uh -huh. I mean, uh, I, Another interest that I have is uh, sort of working with veterans. Mm -hmm. I was just talking about this uh, today, mm -hmm. and um, like I've definitely been, you know, I don't know how many Navy guys I've worked with, but I've definitely worked with people in the Army, in the mm -hmm. Marines, in the Air Force, and I definitely know that there's a, a very strong culture and there is a bond. Mm -hmm. So it, when you think about the pandemic, I remember this is a little bit random, but. Um, you know, in psychiatry, we kind of were able to rotate among different units um, in and out of the inpatient setting. And I remember just seeing, uh, my mom is actually, um, she's a kidney doctor at, the, at one of the VA hospitals mm -hmm. in Nevada. And I remember just seeing her patients uh, and they looked so depressed because they, they're used to dialyzing with each other. Mm -hmm. But because of the pandemic, they had to separate them out. Mm -hmm. And that's not, not fun. Mm -hmm. So if you got... Um, uh, you know, if you have someone like Digit and all his kind of, you know, really they're his brothers, mm -hmm. uh, and you're separating them out, mm -hmm. that doesn't work too well. Where did you Where did you get the idea to kind of write about the Navy and that infrastructure? Uh, are we already really? Yeah, we're yeah. going. Um, fascinatingly, I grew up in an, in a submarine building town in Connecticut. Oh wow! Uh, in, during the Cold War. And my dad was an American Baptist minister, so he was he was working with a lot of Navy people, and of course it's a it's a pretty high echelon of, of, of Navy personnel. Yeah. All of them have advanced degrees in the sciences for the most wow. part. All of them have been tested um, extensively for their ability to do work together in closed long periods of confinement, etc. Yeah. And I had he had actually when I was a kid. Um, a nuclear submarine went down off of Cape Cod between, uh, right, almost exactly between the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Kennedy assassination. Wow. A ship called the Thresher, mm. and it was a result of a kind of Cold War hysteria and the the process, the speed of trying to manufacture these weapons. Yeah. Um, and uh, and in the course of this particular ship's uh, sea trials, 
the ship went down with 120 plus men on board, 20 of whom were military contractors. Wow. Um, and it had always, and he did the memorial service. He was one of the two pastors who did the memorial service mm -hmm. for the crew, and we knew a couple of guys who had gone down on the ship. And I've always been really interested in the politics of the self, and the work of uh, of an English psychiatrist named Andrew Samuels, mm -hmm. who's written extensively on sort of the the, the impact of politics on the psyche, oh, wow. and the and going sort of political. Um, uh, and in this case, also technological, yeah. uh, uh, you know, frenzy that builds at certain points to to moments of crisis. Mm -hmm. So I got very interested in, in in. I was steeped in the submarine culture. All of my friends, young boys, mostly uh, had dads in the nuclear navy who were gone for long stretches. What What would you say of the military branches? What would you say differentiates that culture than some some of the others? Uh, from the other other military branches, yeah. I would say only um, that it's differentiated, perhaps only by that that long those long periods of confinement right. with large groups um, of people who True. are all under the same stresses yeah. and dealing with the same stakes yeah. and um, and out of sight, out of mind, uh, you know, sort of just moving through the, the depths of this great unknown yeah. called the sea. And that's not really, um, that's not so much the case in that kind of confinement mm -hmm. with the other other branches of the military that I know of. Like well, that's at a basic, yeah, yeah, yeah. It seems as though that would be a, a just by a factor of ten, yeah. more you know, stressful to the personality, more requiring more um, just close confines and and dealing with people uh, under the stresses of basically riding along with a yeah. with a you know with 16 nuclear missiles <laughs> yeah, under, their, exactly. under their care yeah. uh, with all of the the uh, you know the the awful things that the imagination can start to do under those circumstances i mean that's sort of a shot in the dark but that would seem to be maybe part of it that attracted me particularly to the to the submarine navy wow but ships at sea are also similarly you know they're just out in the world, uh -huh. on their own for the most part. So. Where did you uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Groton, New London area of Connecticut, mm. um, and then uh, we moved to the Midwest when I was in high school. So, are you? Would you say you're more of an East Coast guy or more of a Midwest? Uh, where, where in the Midwest? Uh, Kansas City. Okay, I so for the past two years I was in St. Louis actually. Oh, were you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's so many Americas. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, I guess I'm an East Coast West Coast guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I tend to leapfrog over the over the middle of the country. Well, there's a big there's a big car culture over there, which there's yeah. no. I mean, it's completely non-existent here in New York. But yes. that I, I miss mm -hmm. that and the barbecue stuff. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, that's a big difference. I mean, what did you have a did you prefer kind of being in Connecticut or being in the Midwest? I preferred Connecticut. I mean, oh, really? Frankly, I preferred being close to New York, mm. even when I was pretty young. Um, yeah. There was always something about this city as just an, an extraordinary, you know, sort of uh, experiment in, in, yeah. in <laughs> human freedom and self-restraint and all mm -hmm. the, and diversity and all the things that go with it. So I, I guess New York for me was always Oz from the very first yeah. time my, my folks brought me here when I was five or six, yeah. and they would come down to go to the theater, and as I got older, they would sometimes take me with them, and so, I don't know, New York somehow has always been uh, yeah, a big part of your life. Was there, uh, did you have siblings too? Yeah, two younger siblings. Wow. Uh, and growing up in the church was itself a, 
you know, I had a kind of an ambiguous relationship with religion, mm -hmm. which um, has since sort of matured into something far more uh, personal and urgent in my in my gazings upon the human, uh, what makes humans human, and yeah. and, uh, and that was out of that experience that a lot of my own uh, thinking about story and thinking about um, the collective relationship we have to story uh, that became more and more kind of central to my own work. So, what, what did your what did your dad have to say about your feelings about the ambiguity and, and stuff? He was he was a he was a liberal Yale Divinity School guy. Oh, he wow. was uh, okay. you know he was a, he was a civil rights guy. Yeah, and, yeah. Supposedly an anti-war yeah. guy, yeah. despite wow. the fact that he too had served in the military. Interesting. Uh, so he was very lenient about my uh, my ambivalence about about religion at that point. So when you think about um, story and that self-discovery sort of element uh, and kind of I guess growing into yourself. I mean, what were the, were there sort of, was it films, was it uh, books that kind of compelled you to take that story element and trying to kind of, you know, discover that, that you could actually do something with this in yourself? I mean, was there, was there specific work that you were exposed to that helped plant the seed? Yeah, actually, um, my dad was, was, as I say, was at, at Yale Divinity School. And, um, and at that time, there had been a great, you know, sort of, uh, uh, exodus of theological um, heavyweights, you might say, mm -hmm. out of Europe and into the Northeast and in, into the universities of the Northeast. Yeah. And Yale had a number of them, um, Richard Niebuhr and uh, a lot of the people who were very much sort of fixated on the on the social gospel, on making making Judeo-Christianity relevant to to the, the social struggles that were happening yeah. at that time. And my dad, very early on, sort of, uh, I remember walking into his study one day and said, what are you working on? And he, and he said, I'm reading a book by Paul Tillich. Mm. I don't know how many kids at maybe 15 or so are even interested in Paul Tillich, but yeah. the guy had a way with words, and he was also a professor, and he drew me in and, and, and helped me to explore this book with him, which had a real impact over time, and even more so as I got to be much older. Um, but he talked about, Tillich talked about, Love plus power equals justice. Mm. That you that if you're if you focus solely on power, power tends to not only corrupt but go into very dark directions. Oh, yeah. If you focus on love, it can become sort of sentimental and self-referential right. and etc. Uh -huh. But it's the convergence of the two that actually comprises justice. And I, maybe this was part of the seed of, of both Brothers in Arms and Brave Talk mm. and even this this project yeah. I was telling you about that uh, power became a, a great interest of mine and how people at the pinnacles of power or in the technological driver's seat of enormous power, as yeah. in the case of a nuclear submarine crew, uh, how they, they cope with the power that they are sort of in close proximity with. And with the, the fact that by whatever happenstance their fate is to have been handed, close access to power yeah. and, and how does justice sort of find its way um, and, and, how, and does love even exist in those quarters at a certain yeah. point, you know, yeah. we're watching, we're watching such a, such a, uh, yeah, chaotic. a, a chaotic yeah. moment in our own political situation yeah. that, that um, really speaks to that problem mm -hmm. of, you know, power without love. What, what does it tend to do? It tends to strip people of justice, it tends mm -hmm. to strip people of their, their own, you know, relationship to power. Yeah, and a, and a kinder, gentler relationship to power. Right. So I did, you know, remarkably enough, for a teenager, I, I sort of began to to understand that a lot of his, 
personal inquiry was philosophical and then finally psychological. Mm. So it really it led me into much deeper explorations of character yeah. and 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 what what is character and how are we formed by conflict. Uh, so that was that was really formative as I look back on it now. Are those would you say those are kind of the tenets of how you write, like in terms of your process? When you write, are you thinking about the character as sort of the central pillar that you want to investigate further in writing, or are you thinking about the story and the plot and the conflicts that arise that complicate the characters' lives? I mean, where do you where do you sort of begin that journey? I, I always have to lead with character. Mm. I always have to know who who these people are, and I spend a fair amount of time just writing biographies of them for myself. Oh, really? Quite often in longhand. Just who wow. are they? And I let them talk to me in first person. Wow. And it's as though I'm doing a, almost like a psychiatric yeah, exactly. and spiritual in, you know, uh, interview yeah. with them. Um, Hmm. Uh, so, and, and it yields tremendous stuff and it quite often is really surprising and you end up not only beginning to understand the how of that character, which is how do they deal with conflict, which mm -hmm. we all have to deal with. What is yeah. their modality for dealing with conflict? Yeah. Because conflict is inevitable in any really fine story if you're working in a binary sort of way. But of course, you know, even that is kind of evolving in an yeah. interesting direction right now with multiple protagonists. Yeah. So, but it always starts with character. Male, female, black, white, brown, yeah. yellow, gay, straight, whatever. You know? So you're almost writing through these interviews and these, I guess, spiritual inquiries. You're almost writing like a, you're writing essentially a backstory for each of the characters. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Because I know, I've heard, I mean, I know a lot of actors kind of do that and mm -hmm. on their own. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm interested to see the process was you know in the drowning, but we're not there yet. So then, when you think about when you think about that, um, you know that inquiry, do you do you kind of discover things that you weren't aware of as you're going, or do you have sort of an outline, like the beats essentially in the characters' lives, and you just have to sort of fill fill in the rest with I guess what you what you think of in the moment. Um, it's it's both because yeah. they are evolving um, f with you, yeah. and they have secrets as we all do, and they have self secrets. You're yeah. always kind of dealing with like what's the degree of the character's self knowledge, because um, sometimes they'll in in those sort of interviews they'll only yield certain things that are kind of presentational about themselves. Yeah. So you will gradually discover that they had dom dom dimensions that they themselves are either aren't consciously aware of or don't want people to be aware of yeah. or whatever. So I would say, it, and, and it's really important that you don't try to schematically define things uh, before you get ahead of yourself and you mm. find yourself sort of leading the characters rather than being led by them. Interesting, which is yeah. really important. Um, and the other, the other curious thing about and it's very different if you're adapting a text yeah. uh, as opposed to it being generative. That mm -hmm. is, one's interpretive essentially, one's generative. Yeah. So um, when you are even even when you're given uh, a, a book like let's let's jump to Border Crossing, yeah. which was Pat Barker's novel upon mm -hmm. which the drowning yeah. was based, she she uses actually a very screenwriterly technique for telling the story, mm -hmm. insofar as she's she doesn't really let you into a lot of the psychological terrain of the characters. It's presented almost completely empirically, which a screenplay is. It's yeah. what they say and what they do. And from that, you have to sort of surmise or begin to fill in for yourself. 
why they're doing this and and and, and who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was a very interesting process of sort of creating my form, my my particular version of that character based on how I read that book and experienced that book. And then also, I imagine the subtext too, right? Like when a character is, has this conflict with someone else and they're trying to either resolve it or um, sort of speak to that. I mean, they can't necessarily say like, you know, you stole my sandwich, that's why I'm mad at you. They have to be, they have to kind of be, I don't know if coy is the right word, but they can't necessarily put all their cards on the table all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So is that mm-hmm. is that a challenge? I mean, especially when you're adapting something like, you know, border crossing. I mean, do you feel like you have um, the liberty to sort of add that stuff in, or do you still feel conscious of sort of what would Pat do in this situation? You, um, subtext is a fascinating thing, and it's yeah. partly why writing these very fulsome sort of first-person um, uh, accounts of a person's life that they're yeah. giving to you, um, you, you want to know as much as you can and to have imagined as much as you can about them. Because you're exactly right, you know, people, seldom does the subtext rise into the yeah. text of any conversation. Yeah. It's usually, it's there often just in, in behavior that may completely contradict what people are saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and of course a film or a book is comprised only of what you're showing the, the reader or the audience. Yeah. Um, but you need to know everything that happened from, from plot point to plot sure. point yourself. And it's out of that knowledge that subtext begins to sort of show itself to you and give you ways that you can begin to explore and expose it even as needed um, that, that are surprising and that are uh, hopefully uh, subtle enough that they're not just sort of broadcasting yeah. the backstory of the character or exactly, yeah. falling into you know ridiculous amounts of exposition. Because I think I, even that scene, I think it's between uh, Digit and Adriana, right? When they're kind of um, essentially seducing each other for this, you know, quote unquote, one night, one night mm-hmm. experience or one night stand. I mean, they can't, they're not, and Digit's totally surprised by sort of Adriana kind of coming on to him in some ways, but then also being a little detached in others. So how do you, I mean, how do you sort of craft that? Is that something that you, um, is that something that you've sort of employed or I guess explored in their backstories? Or is that something that you feel like helps drive the story a little bit? Because that is definitely subtext I mean they seem to be more overt but there's definitely a lot there's a lot of layers in that even in that dialogue between them yes and thank you for for, for doubling back to that um, and, and to some of their encounters because they they both possess only limited amounts of self-knowledge hmm. if you will so in the scene like that they're they, they're, they're te- there's always a sort of a testing that's going on if people have, and particularly when it comes to desire, yeah. because so much of storytelling is a kind of seduction. And, and when you're writing about a, an unco- sort of an unconscious seduction, when you're writing about people who arrive in each other's presence with tremendous unspoken needs yeah. that they don't understand, yeah. um, there's a testing to see if, can I, can, I, can I expose myself a little bit more, not physically, but just psychologically or, or emotionally, yeah. um, um, because the emotions are quite often the things that are actually right below the surface, whereas mm-hmm. deeper self-knowledge is, is usually somewhere in deeper depths. Um, so, in in scenes like that, where you are bringing two two lives together that you've only thought of really separately, you 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 have to sort of let them be, 
and capture what you can, and they will lead you in play, into directions that you or yourself may not have been fully aware of as you began to write the scene. Yeah. So the scene begins to, to reveal itself, and that's why you don't want to have too many preconditions or presuppositions about who they are, because they change within, within the context of who they're speaking with, as we all do. Um, and in the case of a straight man, a straight woman, one of whom is married, one of whom is too young to be with that older, more yeah. experienced woman, but who herself is, a, you know, is sort of creeping along the edges of schizophrenia yeah. without knowing it, you know, they they may only discover that that magnet magnetism between themselves in that moment. Yeah. So you're sort of, you know, you put them in. It's like putting. <laughs> A rattlesnake and a mongoose in the same jar, and wondering yeah. it, and letting them go at it. You know, you you're, you're you know, it develops a certain kind of fascination and excitement in the process of writing uh, to see where they take it, and they quite often take you to places that you did not expect at all. It's almost like a piece of steak when you're cooking a steak. You just got to kind of let it do, let it you know, do its thing, right? You can't keep micromanaging. Can't hurry it, right? Yeah. So then, all right. So you're you're kind of you're in Connecticut. You moved to the Midwest, Kansas City. Mm-hmm. How's that transition? Do you like it? Do you kind of hate it? Or? I kind of hated it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I was in a little university town in Connecticut where UConn is. It's oh, yeah. Is that Hartford? Yeah, uh, it's Doors. It's outside of Hartford. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, you know, all of my there, all of my friends' uh, fathers and mothers were in academia. Yeah. Were fairly self-aware and also very knowledgeable. And, and uh, to be lifted up and placed in the middle of a cow town in 1965, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I was the I was the odd duck in my school. Yeah, I think it was saved by rock and roll mainly because I I played guitar and sang lead, and suddenly oh, wow. suddenly I could kind of get over with kids who otherwise were like they called me the professor. Okay, interesting. <laughs> Interestingly, and it was only because I also could uh, could rock and roll with the, some of the good rockers in the school that I was able to cross that. That uh, in, into the great universal language of music, I suppose. Well, because you um, you actually this is another thing in Brave Talk. I mean, each chapter is lined. It, it sort of begins with this interlude of an R and B or you know kind of a rhythm and blues mm-hmm. riff, right? Where did that where did that uh, idea kind of come from? You know, that's a wonderful question. I am actually working on a novel now, the working title of which is a Judeo Christian history of rock and roll. Mm. Um, and as a kid, my mother was the was the choir director in the in the church. Oh wow. Uh, so we were surrounded by music constantly and yeah. sacred music, but also show tunes and and I was, of course, of the generation to find that, to, first of all, to, to understand the sort of cumulative group release of music yeah. and the beauty of people singing in unison. And another of the things that was influential, uh, so you, the, you're bringing out the extrovert in me, <laughs> one of the things that was universal, um, and so, uh, to, and, and one of the things that was very affecting for me is that quarterly um, they would invite a black Baptist choir to come to their largely white uh, mm-hmm. church, wow. and the two choirs would sort of have a, a like like a battle of the bands, oh, if you will. And do, yeah. You know, the black choir would get up and sing, and then the white choir would get up and sing, and then they would sing one together. And I always located myself, if I could, as close to the black baritones and basses as I could, hmm. because. I just I love the, yeah, the, I love the, the yeah. music and of course so much of gospel is rooted in R and B or R and B is rooted in the, in all of that. Yeah. But most most importantly, I think for me in that sense, and now as a kind of a guiding principle in this book, is 
when religion itself began to sort of fade in its influence over human affairs, mm -hmm. at least in the United States in some quarters, um, there were still these collective rituals of ecstasy, of inspiration, yeah. of group, you know, group solidarity, etc. That I think for my generation was manifested more in our popular music than it was in our relationship to things like church, things like religion. Right. So I always think of it as a remnant of um, kind of uh, as an avenue of self-transcendence in a way. As a, as a way, in, as an immersive way to be a part of a group and the collective power of a group, yeah. um, and and to seek inspiration in music. So uh, that's maybe partly why I just started each chapter as a kind of as a as a key into that chapter, as a lyric into that. And about half the lyrics are, are original; they're not real songs. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, and most of them, in fact. But um, no, there's some of them that are. Yeah. Yeah, some yeah, of them are yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah um, are, are lyrics directly from records at that time. But. Who who are kind of the the rock and roll? I mean, as the professor, I mean, who are the rock and roll influences? Then? Um, initially, uh, you know, Rockabilly yeah. and Carl Perkins, and mm -hmm. of course, and Elvis, and etc. But also Harry Belafonte was a was a different sort of oh, influence yeah. for me. Interesting. Um, and then uh, with the with the arrival, and I was in a, a little university town when the folk music craze was mm -hmm. beginning to take off. Which of, of course was very based in in, in sort of it was a kind of a, a, a um, nostalgic yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, re re retrieval of American popular music by young people at that time. Uh, You're talking about like Dylan and and, and so that when Dylan and yeah. all of them came along, then of course I shifted my allegiance because I was coming into my teens at about that time. Yeah, and um, he had a tremendous influence on on me because he was such a poet, but he also understood the backbeat. He also mm -hmm. understood just the sheer energy of music. And uh, so I would say Dylan and, and, and then on into Springsteen and yeah. Motown was, oh, Motown yeah. was its own, Motown was sort of just beautifully uh, um, orchestrally uh, exuberant yeah. in a certain sense and defiant in its exuberance uh, and seldom overtly political. So I, true, yeah. I sort of had straddled those worlds between, and maybe that's maybe what you would say is one was kind of fixated on, you know, uh, a, a certain kind of aspect of the psyche that music responds to, and, and um, a lot of black popular music at that time was focused on just just survival and coping yeah. and finding inspiration when the, you know when the, the the odds were in the real world were so incredibly tough. So I guess I just uh, I've always thought of it as a form of sort of um, sacred music secularized, so to speak, and the energy of the sacred music I was exposed to as a kid, um, popularized and, and sort of put to work just as a, as, as a way of a generation defining itself. What about, uh, where do the Beatles fit in exactly? Beatles were, of course, a big part of it, too. Did you see Stones. that 1964 thing, that huge appearance that on Sullivan that kind of changed the fabric? Yeah, yeah. you saw it that night, wow. in fact, yeah. What was that night like? <laughs> that was, well, it was, it was sort of revelatory, and, uh, you know, uh, any kid could just sort of appreciate their their sheer, you know, volume and intensity, yeah. but also their their kind of the elegance with the way they could put things across and and the way they work together, yeah. and that was that them and the Stones and, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of them were similarly. Yeah, somebody said I don't know if it was Eric Idle or somebody yeah. who wrote about um, the British invasion right. as a kind of uh, 
survival mechanism um, devised by kids who had survived the Blitz oh, in yeah. London and that hammering of bombed out. yeah, yeah the, exactly. just the sheer bombing of of, of London must yeah. have had some sort of psychological impact on a whole generation of young kids and you know and the way their musical expression came out of the American experience. So uh, yeah, they were all very very influential. So then, uh, so in Kansas City, so you go to high school and everything, and you you finish. So then, where do you go after that? Well, to tap one more time into Kansas City, I was there at a couple of intervals, and and later when I was there, I got much more interested in jazz and etc. Okay. And it was, it was shortly after the it was after the sort of great migration of, of, of jazz musicians out of St. Louis and, and Kansas City and places and, mm. and and the South up into Chicago and New York, but there was a time in Kansas City where a kid like me who was uh, always a little bit uh, you know out on the edge somewhere, where you could go to these. Um, these jam sessions among a lot of them, because wow. a lot of the bands, a lot of the, the headliners were left town, but Lester Young or Charlie yeah. Parker, a lot the of those guys, yeah. they left their bands behind because they all had kids in school and they thought the oh. scene was going to stay there. Wow. So there were all these wonderful little basement uh, just jam sessions that you could find your way into as an as a, as a edgy little white kid. Um, but where I went after that was yeah. after Kansas City, I went to school. Um, I arrived at it for I was a painter and printmaker initially, mm-hmm. with a who minored in film, and I got out of high school early because I hated high school in Kansas yeah. City, and and arrived in Chicago on the eve of the Democratic Convention. Wow. So I left my dad uh, to unload the truck. He was doing a doctorate at the University of Chicago, and mm-hmm. I kind of left him uh, <laughs> to unload the rest of the truck while I went down to the demonstrations at the, at the Democratic Convention. So I did, again, I, my freshman year in college there, I transferred to Oakland College for two mm. years. Ohio? Uh, in Ohio. Yeah. I realized that I actually had sort of left a piece of myself behind as a visual artist. Oh, really? uh, and, and I sort of stumbled through undergraduate school, and, um, and it was also, we were all in the process of trying to avoid the war. I was a conscientious objector to mm. the war. Um, and uh, was that enough to kind of get you out of out of the contention of being in the war? I mean, was that well at the time you would get a student deferment? Oh yeah, that's right. And um, and I was involved in the in, in the you know, free speech movement, yeah. etc. By then, um, and also of course psychedelics had arrived in the counterculture, and there was a tremendous you know, sort of dialectic between the the strict activists and the more uh, poetic uh, yeah. oh, psychological yeah. adventurers and. Like the kind of the beats kind of mm-hmm. thing. Like you're talking about the beats kind of like uh, like Burroughs and yeah, the yeah, beats were, yeah, the, yeah, the beats were certainly influential in all of that. Wait, so were you were you in Ohio in Ohio during uh, the Kent State thing? Yeah, not only wow. was I there during Kent State, but um, Oberlin was 30, 40 miles from Kent, and a number of people had been served John Doe warrants, mm-hmm. which were open-ended warrants. Um, so myself and three or four people just got got a big van and drove to Kent, so we could pick up people who had been served John Doe warrants and brought back to Oberlin, um, because the faculty had declared the campus a safe zone for people who had been served John Doe warrants by the Ohio authorities. So we went up there uh, that uh, that night after the shootings and just picked up people and drove them back to Oberlin, uh, and they were put up in people's dorms and whatnot. So yeah, I was there. Uh, that, that late that night after it occurred. So is that kind of when you, um, are you writing basically this whole time, kind of since you, you know, you, since you got inspired early on? I mean, are you, um, 
are you sort of, when you think about your career, I mean, what are you thinking about in, in undergrad? You said it was kind of a, like a weird experience, but how do you, how do you sort of manifest that interest into sort of working? What, what are your aspirations at that time? Uh, at the time, I was, I was, as I say, I was a painter, painter, right? painter and yeah. printmaker, but I was gradually moving into film because I knew I was a, gradually became aware that I was a storyteller. Mm. And um, I studied, for a while, I was going to go to Mexico to work with um, one of the great Mexican muralists there who was a storyteller of a kind, yeah. named David Siqueiros. Wow. Uh, but Siqueiros was, uh, I was accepted as an apprentice to Siqueiros, but then he, but he was very ill and everybody was waiting for him to get better and he never did. Mm. And in that interim, um, I moved away from the visual arts and more toward writing um, and, and, but spent a brief time as a drop-in at MIT when Richard Leacock and oh, D.A. Pennebaker and Jonas Mikas and mm. all those guys were making, men and women, but mainly men at that point, were making the new kind of cinema verite documentary. So I was very interested in that and was accepted as, as, to do a master's there conditionally. But gradually, even that, I sort of did for a year um, and then dropped out of that, that program and moved on to, uh, to just writing. And that's how Brave Talk developed because I, I had always been sort of struck by the, the pathos of women left behind by men who would be gone for huge stretches of time. And we had, and some of the scenes in, in Brave Talk were directly inspired by my family's attempts to kind of hold some of those lives together, um, uh, like Adriana yeah. in that book. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's, I really began writing, I suppose, in the, you know, along about age 30, 34, 33, 34. And what was the, uh, what was the sort of first entree into the PBS thing? Because weren't you you were working on like animated? I worked on animated film. That was a, yeah. that was sort of just a. I was a kid who moved to New York, needed work, found yeah. a, fell in with some animators, and one of whom had a had a, uh, a had had a familial relationship with um, with Paul Newman, yeah. and and just did those with him directly because he had. He had a, uh, a relationship with, with Sesame Street and mm. he was very involved in, in um, drug prevention for, uh, outreach to children, to young and adolescents, because he had lost his one and only male child to a, sort of an accidental heroin overdose. Mm. So that was really just something that was, um, that, that kind of extended my interest in film but also my interest in just sort of breaking in and doing short scripts for, for filmmakers. And these animators were fantastic with image and fantastic with, you know, with motion pictures, but um, they still needed a story. Yeah. Because as I'm fond of saying, or quoting, you know, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Right. So that's how that evolved. And uh, by that time I was uh, working here in, in um, for HBO. I bought short films for them for a number of years when they were still interstitial programming yeah. at, uh, instead of commercials and previews for their their series and whatnot. So I, as a journeyman learning how to, teaching myself how to write a novel, I would get up at 5 a.m. and write for a couple of hours and then go buy films and uh, for a television network. Because graduate school, um, not that it's particularly interesting, but graduate school for me um, was uh, it was it was just too 
too uh, confining, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I want, I needed to get out in the world and see how things actually got made. Yeah. Uh, and that's what led me to continue to write, excuse me, continue to write fiction. Because I wrote three or four novels and only the first one was published at that point. Um, but I always had a um, an interest in how movies get made in a, on, on, a, on a larger scale and of course that was a time when the when the young New, New York Indies were on the move. I knew Spike Lee, I was yeah. familiar with Jim Jarmusch and, yeah, yeah. and Amos Poe and a lot of those, yeah. those people. And um, But I was not particularly yet interested in writing screenplays as such because I also understood that that was, that was a that, that could become a battle uh, mm. to defend your work in the midst of a much bigger machine that treated screenwriters, yeah, yeah. you know, as, a, yeah. as, a, as a sort of fungible to a degree. Yeah. So I held on to fiction and kept, but kept working in television and film, and ended up as an executive um, in, in creative development who all the writers wanted to work with because I was also a writer. Yeah. Uh, and it really wasn't until I was at Showtime that I started writing for the screen. I wrote a couple miniseries for them, and, yeah. um, and uh, neither of which, two huge ones, uh, which got bogged down because of the politics of film. And, mm. um, but uh, So I finally did straddle those worlds. But uh, Well, one film that I think you're involved with, I think it was at Showtime, uh, was Elvis and Nixon, right? Because mm. you're, you're talking about Elvis. That's yeah. a really interesting film. I was thinking about that, and I was mm. thinking about the state of... Uh, like film and entertainment, and uh, whether that, because uh, I think that was made maybe like seven or eight years ago. I, I was thinking about whether that could be, you know, maybe made now. Because when I think about that, because I think that was Cassie and Elways, right? Keller, whose brother is Carrie. Mm -hmm. That was his thing. And then, uh, you know, it was like Michael Shannon and Spacey was in that. It was incredible. Well, you know, what they did, that yeah. was the remake of the film that we originally made. Oh, at interesting. Showtime as wow. a little $4 million thing. Huh. With Bob Gunton playing Nixon. And I can't remember the fantastically gifted young actor who played Elvis. Yeah. Um, so Spacey latched on. It was a, a oh, real incident that had occurred with yeah. Elvis showing up at the White House. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, full of all kinds of comic and, and, yeah. and pathetic <laughs> possibilities. Yeah. Uh, so I worked on the original film um, and had the pleasure at one point in the in the course of uh, helping the screenwriter get that thing sort of put together, um, of going to Nashville with the Elvis uh, estate forbid us from using any of his music. Oh, really? But nobody forbid us from hiring half of his musicians to create Elvis-like music okay. for the soundtrack. Yeah. So there I am with James Burton and, and the Jordanaires and all these yeah. folks who had worked directly with with Elvis, um, you know, helping to fashion the soundtrack for that film. But yes, so it's a it's a wonderfully uh, whimsical study in in power and the in the sort of goofiness of American life. And was uh, I think Schilling right? That was Elvis's friend or something. Was he involved with the original one? No, he wasn't. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I know. So, but then also in that in that midst, you mentioned that cinema verite influence mm. too, because you definitely made uh, you know documentaries as well. Yeah. So I, I know that you know you made that LA Homefront mm -hmm. about the LA riots. Yeah. I mean, that time were you um, you know were there sort of parallels? I, this is, might be a stretch, but were there parallels between, I guess, the Vietnam era stuff, the Kent State stuff, and that just in a different maybe in a different setting? I mean, did you feel like there was this? Because you mentioned the power thing too, that component. It mm -hmm. seems like there was definitely a power struggle between, you know, the police and yeah. uh, everyday citizens. I mean, did you kind of 
catch wind of wind of that? What led to that um, your involvement in that project? That I, I was um, I was in the midst of a divorce, living in Los Angeles when the when the when the first Rodney King verdict came down. Um, and again, as I've said, I was all I've always been very interested in how power impacts people in their daily lives, and and I also when I'm talking about protagonists with my students, I'm forever sort of stressing the the dimensions of antagonism, yeah. and and of course we begin with the internal antagonist, which you as a as a burgeoning you know psychiatrist <laughs> are interested in, no doubt. There's always an internal antagonist. Always, um, yeah. There is very often in any great story also an interpersonal antagonist, but then there's the social, the societal antagonist that's an overlay of that, right. um, and those happen to be the the first and most irreducible forms of uh, the seven forms of conflict. So, um, in in really and having gone through the uprising on the heels of the King verdict. Mm -hmm. And understanding that, um, and, and knowing people in various walks of life who had experienced it firsthand as I had, uh, it included a Korean family, it included a black family, it included uh, you know people who had very different vectors on the event. So it just struck myself and a team of other filmmakers who were you know really angry with the with the American political situation. Mm -hmm particularly uh, pissed about the LAPD, which yeah. was sort of a rogue operation at that point. Um, and we decided to just sort of have a vigil with cameras and put the home, put cameras in the homes of five families who had lived through the first wave, wondering if they were going to experience that same horrible upheaval and yeah. violence and threat. Um, so um, it was, in some sense, kind of uh, just an experiment in coping and seeing how people Reflected upon and it was. I mean, literally, we made it on a wing and a prayer, um, and, uh, and managed to, to sort of hold this ragtag team of young filmmakers together, uh, shooting in all these neighborhoods and um, themselves you know, potentially under threat as well. So everybody was kind of sharing the same stresses yeah. with the, with our subjects, and, and that's really how that evolved. It's kind of interesting how that that theme, that conceit, is still still going on in our oh, politics yeah. today. I mean, with the, you know the Trayvon thing that happened, I guess maybe mm -hmm. 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. Then all the stuff in uh, Ferguson, Missouri, right in the yeah. Midwest, going back yeah. to your roots, and then uh, yeah. in New York with the Gardner thing, and mm -hmm. then uh, and then now most recently with the Floyd, Floyd. which I guess yeah. became a worldwide worldwide issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you think that, um, uh, I guess, systemically, we're still not, we haven't improved from the Rodney King verdict enough to the point where the police and the citizens of, I guess, our country can kind of coexist mm -hmm. peacefully in a real way? I mean, do you think that we're still um, in a, a sort of sense that we haven't improved as much as we should have? Well, I think you can't deny that, really, and you also can't deny that there are certain professions in this country that force people to be the kind of shock troops for basic inequities that are built into the system that are part of just sort of turbo capitalism as we still experience it. We have the you know a vast difference between haves and have-nots in this country, yeah. but it's the teachers and the cops, etc., who quite often are sitting there, sort of having to deal with, with stresses on populations and the kind of violence that people grow up with, um, that they are somehow expected to you know to adjudicate on the spot in terribly you know high-stress circumstances, um, you know, and and democracy itself is 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 really really wobbly right yeah. now worldwide. 
because it all it, uh, it it's a it's a it's a conception. I I personally think that the mind is is, is a democratic entity. We have bicameral brains. So, yeah. We're we're constantly going back and forth between positive, but uh-huh. what 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 existential choices we personally yeah. need to make, yeah. uh, and in in dialogue with ourselves about how to make those choices and then live with the consequences. So. Um, I guess you would say that. I mean, in in in, in my estimation, we're we're dealing with um, a, a long-term uh, problem in America. Mm-hmm. And Norman Mailer, you know, was famous for talking about just how crazy America is, and it is kind of crazy. And yeah. part of its craziness is because freedom requires so much of each individual. It requires self-restraint. You know, it, it, it requires us to sort of put ourselves in the position of even a cop when we're furious and, and we're on the move towards yeah. some sort of, you know, outburst in our own lives um, that may or may not be possible in that moment because we've lived with a lifetime of violence yeah. uh, on the streets. So, um, and that too, is it's another of those instances in which, you know, I'm just fascinated with how people cope with those flashpoints where the freedom of the country and the kind of almost anarchic uh, way America conducts itself as a culture, kind of, you know, it's it's only as good as the people are informed. It's only as good as stories are at, at getting the truth across because everybody's gra- grappling for what could possibly be true. Yeah, and that in fact is part of what. Um, fascinated me about the Kennedy era and the immediate aftermath of the Kennedy era yeah. and the birth of conspiracy theory uh, that came out of the disinformation that was being actually, in hindsight, directed at us by a foreign power. Yeah. Um, I didn't know any of that stuff. It was your book that kind of unleashed all that. I mean, all the stuff uh, with uh, with Lee and even talking to his mom and his kind of involvement uh, with Cuba. Th- this was all new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was that was mind blowing. Do you do you prefer writing? I mean, what's the process? How does the process differ when you write with someone else versus when you write alone? Um, uh, like any collaboration, you find out where the you know where the uh, the raw places are, and you try to avoid them, <laughs> and yeah. you you try to develop some sort of a mutual sense of each other's strengths, mm-hmm. and um, and then understand that as is usually true in, in a diverse environment where a number of people contribute to a decision, it's quite often a better decision than if one person is going to come up with the solutions. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that film is, by its definition, is a social art form. Um, it's all about collaboration mm-hmm. and all about happenstance and lucky accidents and, and trying to sort of, you know, uh, uh, indemnify the, the, the sort of sacred process of the creation of the story from all of the things that can go wrong. So you just sort of find your way with with a collaborator. And I've had some extraordinarily um, blissful collaborations that then fell apart later because of other kinds of differences, but were great working experiences. And I've had some really, you know, some tempestuous working experiences that resulted in pretty good stuff. Yeah. So. Um, Gus and I were able to, to write what we did and continue to collaborate because I don't try to you know, do what Gus can do far better than I can, and we each bring different things to the table, I would say. It seems like he brings more of the investigative, maybe some of those components. He brings yeah. a lot of the character. Yes, you know, so. I would say that's true. I would say he's very driven by, you know, he's, he, I always uh, you know, think of him as a, uh, 
who was the ancient Greek philosopher who was looking for one honest man. Uh, was Aristotle or Plato? His name escapes me. Yeah, yeah. But I, I have always thought of Gus as, <laughs> he's got a great way of being able to d d disarm people and get to what really happened. And um, and so I rely on that doggedness because he talks, to, he, apropos of the whole process of diversity and, and consulting maximum numbers of sources, he talks to everybody. And uh, and in so doing, they quite often reveal things that they've never revealed to anybody else because he's able to establish that kind of trust. Um, and I think I establish a different kind of trust with people because you are you're a caretaker of secrets, whether they're just the intimate secrets of an everyday person, you know, who's going to share things with you because they, they know that you won't abuse that yeah. knowledge, um, or with people who've had enormous power who who've never been asked for sometimes, you know, what, what they thought was really going on. Are you, are you pretty, uh, are you happy with the drowning and that whole experience? Because when you, I guess when you go to the, when you go to SFA, when you go to the School of the Arts, I think when you get off at the fifth floor on the elevator, I mean, that's, I think it's your poster right there. That's the first one you <laughs> yeah, see. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Like, because uh, when I think about that film, uh, and I think Betty Gordon was, she directed, she directed it. Yeah. So like, and even the actors, I mean, the performances with, uh, Josh Charles, did you see? Um, did you see that SWAT movie ever? SWAT. No. Josh Charles is in it. Yeah. Uh, who was in your movie? And he kind of flips completely. It's kind of interesting. We were talking about character study, but uh, and then Styles is in it. Julie Styles, yeah. and then yeah. that kid is pretty menacing. So do you, um, you know, when you were on that kind of working in that collaboration, would you describe that as a generally positive experience? Yes, I think so. Um, there was a point at which, after I did multiple drafts, where I had to step away because I had other responsibilities that yeah. were starting to press on me, and the the film sort of got pulled into a direction that I thought was 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 different from the book. Okay. Um, uh, and I think there were some fundamental kind of choices that were made that were still a, a result of a very positive dialectical sort of you know creative argument about yeah. where the where the story was going. Um, and I think finally that story went to a place that the book does not go uh, necessarily, and um, you you sort of you know you learn to live with it because it still provokes a lot of thought in the in the in the audience. I think about you know what has happened to a, a young kid who commits such a heinous act, and 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 it gets sort of into the difference between you know guilt and conscience mm, to, to exactly. You know, uh, and exactly. Am I a mistake or did I make a mistake? Yeah. Uh, am I irredeemable or am I redeemable? Right. Um, and I think, for my money, that the book you know actually saw that young person as as somebody who was looking to redeem themselves. Oh, somehow. that is definitely different. Yeah, than and and who um, ultimately is. Uh, is able to redeem themselves, um, in the be, and not because of any great insight on the part of the psychiatrist, um, but because he himself begins to to doubt some of the precepts of his own approach. Oh, interesting. To, so you know that was an instance in which the adaptation I, I felt was ultimately fairly different from the book, hmm. uh, and you make peace with the, the decision that the that the director makes um, at that late phase of a story. Uh, and and you you know you sort of you're glad that it got made and you keep moving. Um, so that was a you know that was still a, a worthwhile project I think and 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 said some pretty important things about trauma because yeah. of, finally you know that's a character who's suffering from um, 
CPTSD, mm -hmm. complex PTSD, yeah, as right. you know about, right? Once <laughs> yeah. removed from, yeah. you know, he's, he was not like his father or somebody who went to Fallujah. Right. In the case of how we adapted it in the book, he, he goes to the Falcon, Falklands and mm. in that war. Oh, interesting. But in our, our version of it, he was somebody who was trapped in the horror of Fallujah. And the kid was exposed to the father's, you know, you know, kind of craziness afterwards. And that was part of what ate away at his understanding of right and wrong, uh, and to the point where he sort of had objectified death hmm. uh, because it, it, it was so upon him, I think, at a, at a time in his life when he wasn't really able to process it and all he had to relate to was his father. So um, it still, I think it was, ended up being an important look at, at trauma. And the, the you know the variance on how young young minds will respond to trauma when they're undefended, yeah. so to speak. So I mean, as we kind of wrap up, uh, and I guess speaking of trauma, I mean that nine eleven. You made a nine eleven dog too, that generation film, right? Yeah, what yeah. was that? Uh, how was that experience sort of differently in terms of looking at power, looking at trauma, looking at all the themes that we kind of discussed? I mean, how was that different than? The Elliot riots, the cinema verite stuff you were exposed to before that. I mean, did you find sort of new layers unveiling when you were making that uh, that piece? Yeah, because war is a whole new level of violence. Yeah, systematic violence. Um, unlike uh, a kid who kills an old lady in his town because he's kind of un because he doesn't really understand what he's doing and right. etc. Homicide is sanctioned in war. Hmm. Um, it's the point at which the government says whatever your homicidal impulses might have been by your cruel old uncle, yeah, you, know, them, yeah. you couldn't kill him, but you yeah. could go to war and, right. and join in this process of sort of collectivizing guilt and responsibility. Um, and so I, I would say it's a, it's just a factor of a thousand uh, in, in so far as we dealt with. You know, people who were um, abused at Abu Ghraib, we dealt with children whose parents, um, Afghan, a couple of Afghan kids whose, whose entire family was wiped out by American bombs on the other side of a wall when these two kids were in the other, in the other room making tea for the family. What? So we dealt with, with a, a level of organized violence and, and relentless, overwhelming power without any sign of love, without any sign really of restraint in the aggressor. Um, that can be, you know, radically alter your, your any hope you might have for survival, or, or, uh, and certainly any hope you have for justice. So I think it's just a, it's just a huge magnification of it. And uh, you know, I'm not a pacifist per se, but I, I think most wars at bottom are bullshit and have, are, are, you know, instances of of uh, unreason run amok uh, yeah. that justifies itself to to uh, cross you know all of those boundaries that we try to hold on to in our own lives so yeah I think that that would be the best way I can express it so what class are you going to teach out of this hmm? what class are you going to teach I mean what class have you been kind of teaching and uh, I've been teaching revision yeah lately okay. uh, <laughs> which is a which is fantastically interesting of course um, these are these are full-blown uh, features generated by people who haven't written too many yet um, and so the whole structural investigation of character and how character evolves over the course of, of a, of a, of a two-hour journey is central 
and we tend to fall in love with our first drafts. And yeah. So you want to keep what's lovable and and and, and redeemable, and yeah. you also trend the fact. You know, it's yeah. it's fascinating how everybody has their own process. Everybody mm. finds it in a different way. True. And you've got to see how they what their process is. You've got to try to see into their process and draw their very best um, out of them. Uh, and and get it onto the page, um, and really try to sort of re-envision their own creation, which is not easy. No, you, know, you to, to, to break it all the way back down to its components and really understand what you were going for, etc. I always say that when somebody comes to me at the beginning of a class and says, "I got all my themes worked out, man. You know, the themes are this and the themes are that," and, and my response to that is, "If you have your themes all worked out, there's no mystery for you." Uh-huh. Yeah. You and 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 you're probably going to write a boring film. Yeah. So you know. Um, yeah. Spice it up. Let's re- get some conflict re- in there. Re- you know, re- <laughs> re- interrogate your own motives. You, yeah. you know, get, get now you can enter the process in a different way. Because yeah. you do have a full draft. It's not going anywhere. It yeah. has its beauties, but it's not there yet. Yeah, talk so. to your, have a conversation with your antagonist from inside, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. So all of those different dimensions of antagonism, I always say to my students, you know, your job is to torture the protagonist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, exactly. and, and, and make that dynamic and, and force them to sort of address the conflicts that have entered their lives, which is, you know, easier said than done and more complex than you could ever imagine, and as is life. Well, I think that's a good place to end. Thanks for thanks for uh, you know letting me get to see in your process and, uh, and being here with me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for so much for having delved into uh, Moltonia here. With me <laughs> no, for it's a, good. Yeah. for a while, and yeah. uh, you know, let's. Uh, I'll, I'll be keeping my eye on where you go, vice versa, because I think what you're doing. Is yeah, good. I don't really know about that either. It's very good. much. Uh, I gotta I gotta do my own self discovery yeah, yeah. search. Yes, yeah. yeah. All right, thanks well, a lot. Thank you, John.